verses 9 through 12, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, we are in a sermon series that we began a few weeks ago studying through the book of 1 Peter. It'll take us through the summer, and we're calling this Encouragement for Exiles because Peter is writing to a group of people that he refers to as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers, people who don't belong in the place where they're living. And he encourages them and how they're to live for the gospel in light of their situation. What better word for us that we would live for the gospel, live trusting in the hope of the gospel, the power of the gospel in light of our current situation. So we're going to be looking at this text this morning. And I hope that as we study this together, that you will walk away with a clear sense of how the Lord wants to use your identity in Christ as a, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. That the Lord wants to use that newfound identity that you have to lead you as you chase after his plan, his purpose for your life. And even as Colby shared earlier, we're going to read about this identity that we have as the people of God that is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. You know, identity is a big thing in the moment, right? Uh, identity is at the forefront of so many things politically, uh, not, only, not only because of what's happening with uh, the, the riots and the protests and the other things that are happening in the streets all across our land where identity is a major issue right now. But even in a more general sense, just of the, the, the day and the time that we're in, even if we're not talking about the past week, the past two weeks, but even just in the past few years, this idea of identity comes to the surface a lot. And We've talked about this before, that we have to be careful as believers that we don't make other matters of identity uh, more important than our identity in Christ. I don't mean to say that there aren't other ways that we identify. We identify according to where we live, where we work, uh, our name, our skin color. We identify according to our age. We identify. There are so many ways that we think of ourselves. And I, but as believers... Our, our faith in Christ must rise to the top of that list so that the, first and foremost, we see ourselves and others who are believers in Jesus as the people of God, as a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, even as we're that we understand that in Jesus... Now we receive a new identity that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And that new identity now orders everything else about our lives. Now, hear me, other identities are important. And, and I don't mean in any way to diminish the, the other things. I don't mean in any way to diminish the, 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 the moment and the urgency of matters that ought to be at the forefront of our thoughts and our actions even in the moment. But what I am saying is that as a believer in Jesus, that is more important than any other thing that we would use to identify ourselves. And that as much as anything then orders how we respond to all the other things that are a part of our identity and, and a part of our lives. And so identity is huge and it's a part of this text this morning. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 12. And even as we read this, I want you to be thinking about all the ways that you see Peter speaking about identity here in this text, in this passage. Beginning in verse 9. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter is writing here to believers, and he refers to them in, in six different ways, by my count, that he's speaking to their identity. Let's look at, look at these. In fact, the first four happen in verse 9. The first four ways that he speaks of our identity all happen in verse 9. And actually, each one of these is tied to the Old Testament. So there are two passages in particular in the Old Testament that you can go to. You can go to Exodus chapter 19, look at verses 5 and 6. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, the children of Israel are gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And Moses is about to go up to the top of the mountain where he's going to spend 40 days with the Lord and and God's going to give him the law. And and the, the voice of the Lord speaks there at Mount Sinai. And what God says to the nation of Israel is, Essentially this, you are my chosen people. You are a a nation of priests, a people of my possession, he says. And I'm going to give you this law. And this law is going to be a covenant between us that that will unite us together. There's another passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 43. If you look at verses 20 and 21 in Isaiah 43, the Lord is speaking. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the nation, calling them back into a right relationship, calling them back from this same covenant that they had wandered away from, that they had strayed from. And God is speaking to his people. And he's even speaking with uh, sort of an element of prophetic utterance, an element of prophecy, speaking of not only what the people needed to hear them, but even predicting things that would come. And Isaiah is saying that through, through God speaking, really, through Isaiah, saying that you will be for me, my chosen people. You will be a people of my possession. You are the ones that I have chosen. It is through you that I'm going to demonstrate my majesty, my glory, so that the world may come to know me through you. And here, Peter connects the dots for us. Here, Peter is showing us that what God spoke of through the prophet, what God spoke of through the mountain as the voice of the Lord was heard by the nation has come to pass and is true of us as believers in Jesus. We are the people of God. Look at specifically at the four different ways that he describes this. First of all, he says that you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. That word race in the, word, in, in the Greek language is the word genos. And it's where we get the word like genealogy comes from that. Genealogy being a study of race ultimately. It's the idea of, uh, it's tied to our ethnicity, right? We think of it as our ethnicity. And so he's saying, you are going to be You're going to be my chosen race, my chosen group of people that I have chosen to show my glory to the world through you. As a believer, Christian, you are God's chosen race that he wants to show his glory. Aren't you grateful? I'm grateful that God's 
God's anointing, God's power, God's work in our lives is not bound by the color of our skin. It's not, in fact, uh, I, for all of the people who really think that one race is any better than any other, I feel sorry for them when they get to heaven, if they get to heaven, I suppose, right? Uh, someday, if they believe in Jesus, they're going to show up in heaven and they're going to find that God has painted with a beautiful palette of colors and that uh, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. The gospel is true for all of us. What matters is, do we trust in Jesus? Do we believe in him as Lord and Savior? The gospel is for everyone, and anyone who calls in the name of the Lord is now a part of this chosen race of God by faith. But not only does he say here that we're a chosen race, that word genos, it's we are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament way, we know that the priests were the Levites. They were a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. But now, Peter is saying that all of you are priests under God. All of you have a direct relationship. What does a priest do? A priest mediates between the people and God. A, a priest is someone who stands in, who plays an important role in the act of worship, connecting people, pointing people to God. And what Peter is saying is, you don't need a priest in order to have a relationship with God because Jesus was the high priest who made a way for us through the shedding of his own blood so that we can be united. We refer to this idea as the priesthood of the believer. You ever hear us talk in theological terms? We refer to the priesthood of the believer. And what the priesthood of the believer means, essentially what that doctrine teaches is that each one of us is able to connect, if you will, or relate to the Lord directly. We don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to come through me as a pastor to pray. You don't have to come through me to talk to God. You don't have to go through the church to, uh, to receive mercy, to receive salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. You can have a direct relationship with God because Jesus went before you, as the book of Hebrews says, as the high priest. He made a way for us to be forgiven. He broke down the dividing wall that existed so that we have access to God through faith in Jesus. We're a royal priesthood, not just one particular tribe, not just one particular vocation, but all of us priests under God. Third, he says, you're a holy nation. Now the word holy nation, the word nation itself in the Greek is the word ethnos. Now we know of ethnos, you think of ethnicity, right? But it's, it's separate from genos, which was the word for a people or a race rather in that first term that we referred to a nation now meaning that when we think of nations we think of borders we think of nation states inside of any particular nation there might be a variety of ethnicities there might be a variety of people from different backgrounds but they're united together as a nation right that's what an ethnos is you're ethnic you're you're, you're uh, if you want to think of it along this line your tribal sort of identity well our nation is the nation of God. Our nation is the people of God, right? We, we belong, we, we have a, a, a king and we belong to his kingdom first and foremost. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to celebrate and have pride in our identity as Americans or any other nation under the, un, under the sun. But the point is, first and foremost, we are the people of God. We belong to him. He is our savior. He is our king. He deserves our our greatest allegiance, our primary loyalty belongs to Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our King, no other. 
He also says, a people of his own possession, a people for his own possession. Again, this people, this word people here in Greek is the word laos, or uh, it means it means people. I mean, it means what it is, what the way they translated it here. But but we've got these words: genos, ethnos, laos. They are all they are all Greek derivatives pointing to our identity as a people, as a nation, as a as an ethnicity, as a race, a, as as a group of priests that we belong to Him. And each of these are important for us to understand. But not only are we to be a people of His own possession. Look at what He says in verse eleven. He says that we're sojourners and exiles. Sojourners means that we are foreign neighbors. When someone is a sojourner, they are living in a foreign land. It's a person who's living in a foreign land. And so that's what the sojourner is. Someone who, uh, if, if you know anyone that doesn't have a U.S. passport but is living here in the United States of America, they're a sojourner here. And if perhaps you've ever lived outside of the United States, sometimes we use the word, these days we'll use the word like expatriate. You're an expatriate, meaning that you're someone that maybe you're, Maybe your, your nationality is with another nation, but you're living in it. That's a sojourner. That's that term that's used throughout the Bible. And what it means specifically for us in this context is we have to understand this world is not our home. We're living here for this season. We are called of God to make a difference and have an impact for his kingdom in this season. But this world is not our home. We should not become comfortable and accustomed to the things of this world so that, we, so that we, uh, we long for this world, we should always have an, a longing in our hearts for our true home where we will one day be gathered together, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, at the throne of Jesus to proclaim him as our king. Not only that, we're exiles, which means an exile speaks to the temporary nature. It's much like being a sojourner, but the, the, the unique qualitative Distinction is that an exile is someone who is in that place temporarily. They are not in their home. They are there for a season, passing through as we may think of it. So here, let's summarize it in this way. Let's summarize to take all of these, these six different ways that Peter has spoken of our identity. And let's summarize it this way to say that as Christians, our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ as King, as Lord, as Savior, as boss, if you will, whatever word you want to put in there that helps you understand that our primary allegiance is to Jesus, not to the color of our skin, not to a flag, not to a zip code, not to a last name. Those things are all special and important and have their place. But our primary allegiance is to Jesus as Lord and Savior, as, as, as the king of our hearts, the king of our lives. And so our job is to represent Jesus to an unbelieving world. If you are a believer in Jesus, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that you are an ambassador to this world. You are an ambassador to an unbelieving world. You represent your kingdom, your king to the world around you. Let's not forget that our allegiance belongs to Jesus. That is our identity primarily, first and foremost. That is our identity. It's also interesting and important that in verse 10, he speaks of, this, this language that's borrowed from the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you understand the story of Hosea, then this begins to make sense. Turn in your Bible to Hosea chapter 1. I want you to see this for yourself with your own eyes. Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to read beginning in verse 6. Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. God told Hosea... 
the prophet Hosea, God told him to go and take a wife who was a prostitute. And then from that union, God gave them children and God told them to name their children, not my people and no mercy. How would you like that, right? How would you like it if, if your name was not my people? Or your name was no mercy. But that's what God told Hosea to do. And Hosea was obedient. Beginning in verse 6, Hosea 1. Speaking of Hosea's wife. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now turn to chapter 2, Hosea 2, and look at verse 23. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. What's happening there? Hosea is saying that that even in his own family, through, through the word of the Lord and his obedience to the Lord, God is giving Israel this visual demonstration of their rebellion and their sin. And even these children that Hosea had with his wife were a, a representation of Israel's waywardness and their rebellion and the fact that God would bring judgment upon them. But the Lord speaks of a day that's coming. He speaks of a day when he will relent of his wrath and he will show mercy to no mercy. And he will be the, the king, the Lord of not my people. It's speaking in Romans chapter 9, Paul connects the dots. Look in Romans chapter 9 verses 24 through 26. Paul writes there, he says that even to us whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. What Paul is doing is Paul is connecting the dots saying that this prophecy that God gave the nation of Israel through Hosea ultimately is fulfilled and, and demonstrated in Jesus to us as the people of God. So that those who once didn't belong, those who were outsiders because of their race, those who were outsiders because of their ethnicity, and that's us, right? We were Gentiles according to this distinction of Jew versus Gentile that Paul is arguing of in, in the book of Romans. And according to that distinction, we were outsiders. We didn't belong, and yet by the blood of Jesus, now we belong. Now we are his people. Now we are his chosen race. Now we are a ro royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. What he's saying is that we belong to Jesus. And that is our primary identity. Regardless of what your ethnicity may be, regardless of what your last name may be, regardless of the, the nation of your birth, regardless of so many other lines that we draw as lines of distinction. If you are in Jesus... You belong to him. Your Christian identity 
matters. In fact, I want us to see three things that he goes on to tell us in this passage that come from this foundational understanding of our identity. So in verses 9, 10, and 11, he's laying the foundation for us of what our identity is to be. And then in verse 12, he's going to tell us why this identity matters and what this identity teaches us. You understand that? So we've laid that foundation. We've seen that we are the people of God. We are chosen by him. We are a royal priesthood. And so now let's look at three ways that that we are to live in light of this Christian identity, this identity that we have as the people of Jesus. The first is this, that we're to understand that identity motivates action. Our identity motivates us to act as the people of God. In fact, he gives us three examples here in verse 12 that I think are all really important for us. So let's look at these. That we are, uh, first of all, he says that we are to, really, the first of these, let me back up a half step. The first of these comes from verse 9, the first example. But we're to proclaim his excellencies. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the first practical example that he gives us here of how that identity motivates the action. That we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. We're to proclaim that. We're to, we're to shout that from the rooftops. We're to sing about that. We're to testify about that. We're to bear witness about that. We're to talk about that and pray about that. Make that the, the central part of who we are. That it, becomes, that it becomes to us our favorite subject. You know how we all have like pet subjects that we want to try to steer the conversation to a certain subject, right? We all do this, right? There are certain things that we love to talk about. And given the opportunity, we will steer the conversation to this particular topic because it's just something that's near and dear to our heart. It's our passion. As the people of God... We ought to be passionate about his kingdom. We ought to be passionate about steering the conversation, as it were, to our faith in Jesus, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into the light. We, we have a newfound identity in Jesus. And praise God, he saved us from our sin. Praise God, he called us out of the darkness so now we can live in the glory of his light. But not only that, He says here that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We're to abstain. So as sojourners, as exiles, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, meaning we're not to give in to those those urges of the flesh. Think of all the ways that the flesh urges us to sin. Think of all the ways that we are tempted in our flesh. Think of all the ways that you are tempted to and led into sin. Your identity in Christ should motivate you not to give in to those temptations. We're not to give in to those urges. Are the urges real? Yes. Do they exist? Yes. What do we do with them? We fight them. We wrestle against them. We don't just give in. And that's a big part of the identity, uh, the, the understanding of identity of the day. Well, I'm, I'm just made this way. I'm just wired this way. This is who I am. This is how I identify. So I ought to just give in to that. But what the Bible teaches is, that there is a right and wrong that, that is uh, bigger than how you feel and, and how you identify and that we're to live according to truth, not, not led by our identity. And that if there is a, a way in which you or I are tempted or led into sin, somehow we resist. We don't give in. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because as the people of God, we are called to be a holy nation. 
as he said in verse 9. A holy nation, which really echoes chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 that we looked at a few weeks ago. That we're to be holy because God is holy. We're to be set apart. We're to be distinct as the people of God. So our identity motivates our action. How? That we would proclaim his excellencies, that we would stain from passions of flesh. And then, as it says in verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when you speak, rather when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're to keep our conduct honorable, which is to say that we are to do our best to remain above the fray, so to speak. That we are to do our best to honor the Lord in all things, in all circumstances, in all situations. That means that that, that little part of us that wants to stand up and, and demand our way, that little part of us that says, I, I'm, I, I shouldn't be treated like this. No one should talk to me this way. No one should do this. That little part of us that wants to assert our rights, that little part of us that wants to, that wants to come to the surface and defend our name, that part of us has to take a backseat to all that we must do to honor Jesus as Lord, that we're to keep our conduct honorable. That means that as we proclaim his excellencies, as we abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, we need to remember that our witness matters. How we live, what we do matters to an unbelieving world. And so we must keep our conduct honorable. We must watch the way that we live. And all of this flows from our identity. If we will focus on who we are in Jesus and, and, and representing him as his ambassadors to a, a lost world, it will help us to live in light of the gospel. Secondly, we see that identity informs our expectations. That our identity informs our expectation. So identity motivates our action and identity informs our expectations. Notice that he says here, not if, but when. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. When is the key there. It's not if, but it's when. Remember Peter's own experience with suffering? If you know a bit of Peter's story, you know Peter's background. You remember that Peter faced suffering throughout his lifetime, but we see it, we see it particularly in the book of Acts, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, that Peter was, he was imprisoned, he was jailed, he was beaten for his faith. And what was Peter's response in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, 41, 42? We see that, that after the religious leaders had severely beaten Peter and his brothers in Christ, his, his fellow disciples, that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Their identity informed their expectations. Yes, we may face hardship and difficulty in this world. That's okay because they can't take Jesus from me. They may take everything else, but they can't take Jesus. And if, they, if, if I suffer, then I'm gonna praise God that I'm counted worthy to suffer for his name, that he's entrusted me to suffer for the sake of his name. Our identity informs our expectations. We expect so much of the time, if we're being honest, we expect to follow Jesus and never face any hardship and we don't want any difficulty and we don't want obstacles and we don't want to have anything that we have to overcome or persevere through. And yet, again and again, we see the consistent witness of the scripture. It's not if, but when. And when we suffer for the name of Jesus, when we face opposition, when we face persecution, when they revile you and speak evil against you, that we must 
bear witness to our Savior, our Lord Jesus. Identity informs our expectations. And then finally, that identity, that, that foundational identity fuels our mission. It fuels our mission. It motivates us to act. It informs our expectations. And it ultimately, it fuels our mission. You know, I've coached soccer for all four of my kids at different stages of their life along the way. And for the last several years, I've been Nixon's coach. We missed spring soccer this year. That was one of many things that we all had to deal with uh, in, you know, in kids' sports, kids' activities, so many things that were affected by the COVID pandemic. And in our world, in our family, that meant that soccer season got canceled. And I remember when, when they were really little, when they were really little, you didn't keep score. You didn't, you, you didn't, the coach got right out on the field with them. You didn't worry about, you didn't worry about the wins and losses. The goal was let's learn the game. Let's teach kids about sportsmanship. Let's teach them to play the right way. Let's teach them, let's define what a win is. A win at that early level wasn't about did we score more goals than other teams scored. A win for us was did we all get lined up in the right direction? Did we spread out rather than bunching together? Did we pass the ball? Were we good sports? Were we, were we good about celebrating others when they had success? I mean, right, a win for us was, did I know, have I been paying attention in practice? Do I know what to do when the ball goes out of bounds, right? And, and, and along the way, things get, they get more and more complicated, more, the more and more the, the real uh, competitive juices begin to flow and the wins and the losses begin to matter and the goals do count and some of those things. But every step along the way, we see this in, in athletics that we define what's a win for us? What are we going to celebrate? What's a win going to be for us, right? As believers in Jesus, we, we have a similar concept, a similar idea. We have to define what's a win for us. A win for us is not a life of relative comfort and ease. A win for us does not mean that we never face any kind of suffering or persecution, that we never have hardship. If that's your expectation, then honestly, you don't have the right expectations. You're not allowing your identity in Christ to inform your expectations. When we have a proper identity, a proper understanding of who we are in Jesus, then it defines what a win for us is. A win for us is anything that advances the kingdom of God, anything that moves the mission of God forward in this world. And so even now, there are nations in this world today, today, as we speak, as we are gathered here for worship, even now, there are believers who are gathered in secret, gathered covertly around our globe today to worship Jesus as Savior. And, and we may think, oh, I pray to God that that would never happen here. And I, I share that same sentiment. I don't want to have to go through suffering. But what we have seen throughout the history of the church again and again is that where the gospel faces opposition, it flourishes. Did you know that it's, it's a little bit difficult to get a firm grasp on the actual numbers, but two of the places in the world where the gospel is being most uh, persecuted right now are in China and in areas of the Middle East. But did you know that the gospel is exploding in China? Some reports say that there are more Christians in China today than there are people in the entire United States. Again, many of them are meeting in secret, and so it's a little bit hard to judge that accurately. Take nations of the Middle East. We typically think of a nation like Iran or Iraq, and we think of how 
these are totalitarian uh, theocracies ruled by uh, Muslim leaders, right? And even in those nations, the gospel is, is flourishing. The church is thriving and growing by leaps and bounds in these places where believers are facing suffering and persecution. Why? Because the gospel will not be hindered by the works of men. And so even if we someday face persecution for our faith, may we do it with boldness knowing that our identity in Christ fuels our mission. It informs our expectations, it motivates us to act, and it it fuels our mission. Our mission as a church is to love all people to faith in Christ and to multiply disciples. And as the people of God, as the people of First Baptist, we want to remain focused on that mission. So we're going to take some time this morning to reflect on this truth. And here's how we're going to do this. Throughout the month of June, this will look a little different than it normally does. Because when we reach this point in our service where we normally would have our invitation and our altar call, instead, we're going to sing a song and we're going to use this as a moment to reflect. If you're joining us again online today, we want to encourage you, even as we sing this song, that you would use this as a moment to reflect on this truth, to reflect on what God is saying and what he's doing and how he's speaking to you. And As we sing this song together, may this be a moment where we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. And after we sing together and after we sing this song, then I'm going to come back and we're going to spend just a moment together talking about our response. So let's do this. Let's all stand together. And even as you stand, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And as we pray, we're going to ask God to speak to us through his Holy Spirit this morning as we reflect on this word of truth. Would you join me now as we pray together? Lord, speak to us in this moment. Spirit, stir in our hearts that we might see ourselves first and foremost as your people, a people of your possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and that we would proclaim your excellencies to this world, that we would abstain from the desires of the flesh And that ultimately, we would bear witness to the world around us by keeping our conduct honorable, by being holy and living for you, even in the face of hardship and persecution. Move in us now, we pray. Amen.